Hello and welcome to The 100 Podcast. It's Ed and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. So much news going on in The 100 sphere since The 100 draft. So today we're going to go through them. We're going to go through some of the headlines. We've got new coaches, players, situations changing. So we're going to go through all of the headlines about the tournament. We'll also answer your mailbag questions at the end of the podcast. Um, But the meat of this episode really is taking a look at the women's draft. Obviously, the women's draft is done in quite a different way to the men's. It's not really so open. So we couldn't really predict anything beforehand. We didn't really know what was going to happen. So... Now the results have been out and we've had some time to think about it. We're going to go through, pick out the biggest storylines. First of all, though, Charlie, if you were to take Wayne Madsen on a night out anywhere in Essex, where would you go? Well, I think Chelmsford and Brentwood are probably obvious go-tos. However, I would like to go for a slight curveball here and say Colchester because I feel like he's the kind of guy that would appreciate a military town and that's what Colchester does very very well (laughs) every single bloke you meet out in Colchester claims that they either are or were in the SAS and that's what I like about the place I think Wayne would enjoy that so Colchester for Madsen let's get into things then and let's start with Australia, who have appointed Andrew McDonald, former Leicestershire head coach, as their full-time national team head coach And that has opened up the Birmingham Phoenix role to the man who hosted it last year, Daniel Vittori. McDonald to Australia seemed like a bit of a procession. I kind of saw it coming. It kind of made sense. Bit of a change from the old Langer model of being super aggressive with players. And Andrew's not really that. So I think that's a nice thing. But we are not a general cricketing podcast. We're a 100 podcast. So Daniel Vittori is back in charge of a 100 side here we go. He's home. He is home. I mean, look, in, in all seriousness, I, I was not particularly surprised by this and I didn't really even register it was a change because McDonald has been the Birmingham Phoenix men's head coach for about three years, despite not actually having done anything with the Birmingham Phoenix in that time beyond the initial draft. He just hasn't been there. The Tory has been de facto head coach the entire time and it just makes sense. So it's one of those bits of news where it's like, yeah, cool. We get it. Nothing's actually changed here, but we get it. Birmingham Phoenix Hall of Famers, Shaheen Sharafridi and Andrew McDonald. I remember, was it the first draft? He wasn't there because he was on a plane. Yes, the that doesn't bell. Yeah. <laughs> Why can you not organise your plane journey around this massive part of your job? Anyway, um, so Andrew's out, Vittori's in. I, that, that, that did make sense, I think. I imagine they knew this was happening bef- before time because given how well Vittori did last year, it would have made sense for him to go in for the superchargers over James Foster or even over into the London Spirit. However... I don't think there's quite any team in world cricket that fits Daniel Vittori like the Birmingham Phoenix do. It's a Vittori ball team, and I think it's a good fit. And frankly, I think he deserves a second chance because for a long time, I haven't been Daniel Vittori's biggest fan in T20 cricket for perfectly justifiable reasons, I think, in general. But I think last year, he did do a very good job. So good for him. Excited to see him back. It's exactly the same, really, for the Birmingham Phoenix. But we get to see year two of Vittori after a good year. I, I, I'm i really interested to see how he goes. Really interested. Well, I'm just happy that the draft's left him with another turbocharged Middlesex seam attack to play with. We know he loves that, <laughs> and that's what he's got here. So I'm very excited to see that pan out. 
Other big news in the coaching sphere, obviously James Foster is in at Northern Supercharged. That was announced ages ago. Uh, Trevor Bayliss is in at London Spirit. Obviously tragic circumstances with Shane Warne's passing, but it's nice to see Trevor involved in the 100s. I'm really happy he's involved because he's a great T20 coach. Obviously got that great relationship with Owen Morgan. I think it's a nice, it's a nice combination for the London Spirit. Obviously, in ideal circumstances, Shane would still be there and we'd have loved to see another season of him. But I'm happy to see Trevor in the tournament, which I think is good. Trevor Bayliss is a world-renowned coach. He's high class. He's done it all. I think it's a really good appointment for them. It is exciting for them. I think he's a good fit for what they want to do. I think they've drafted, not amazingly, but they've got some decent players. I think man for man, they're stronger than last year. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do. Indeed, I think it's going to be interesting. The other big news for London Spirit is that their first overall pick, Kyron Pollard, has announced his retirement from international cricket, which should open him up to play the entire 100, basically. This is interesting, Charlie, because when the draft was announced, we were a bit concerned that London Spirit fudged it a little bit because Pollard wasn't supposed to be there for much of the tournament. I don't know if they had prior intel into Corin Pollard considering retirement. Maybe they did. Let's give them the benefit of a doubt and say they did, because I think it's nice to believe people are intelligent rather than stupid. Um, but this does mean that the London Spirit seem like in a much better place now. 100%, yeah. I think if Pollard were to miss most of the competition as we did expect initially, then that would have been a bit of an issue for them. They've had to fill that gap with the wildcard draft and they might, they, they almost certainly wouldn't have been able to do that with a player of Pollard's quality. Having him there now means that you have a very front-looking middle order of Lawrence when he's there, Maxwell, Pollard and Morgan, with Jordan Thompson floating around as well. That's seriously good. That's seriously exciting. And I, for one, I'm looking forward to seeing that take the field. You can't get much better than that, I don't think. Yeah, and it's exciting to see Pollard in the team with the likes of Owen Morgan and Glenn Maxwell. I think the London Spirit are going to be fun next year. So given how many problems the tournament's had with overseas availability, it's a really good thing. Let's move on to the women's draft then. Um, Look, we didn't do anything really at the time of the draft because the men's process is relatively transparent and the women's process really isn't. As far as we can tell, what happened in 2019 is every good cricketer in England, received a call from Charlotte Edwards saying, would you like to play for the Southern Brave? And they all simultaneously said yes, leaving some teams in pretty poor situations, to be frank. Um, So it's really tough to tell what was going to happen. We didn't know who was leaving, how it was all going to work. Frankly, we still don't know how any of it worked. I wonder how much of these player changes were manufactured. But now we've had some time to process it. Let's analyse things. And I think the biggest changes come to the Welsh Fire, who last year were a disaster, to be frank. They didn't really belong in the same competition as the Southern Brave, which I think was a shame. But this year, they get some big additions. Obviously, Hayley Matthews is back. They bring in Rachel Haynes as an overseas. They also got Annabelle Sutherland coming as an overseas. But they get three big domestic additions. Tammy Beaumont is going to come in and captain the side. You've got Fran Wilson, both England stars, and then former World Cup winner Alex Hartley also comes in for the Welsh Fire. They needed talent. They've got talent. And those are three genuine England players all coming into the franchise at once, which is exactly what they needed. 
Yeah, it's seriously eye-catching stuff, isn't it? I think you look at the signings that all of the teams have made um, in this kind of transfer window process. And I feel like in terms of the domestic names, Beaumont, Hartley and Wilson, three of the biggest moves overall, I think. For them all to go to Welsh Fry at once is a very good bit of business. I think they needed some, some strength and depth. They needed to make some big signings, particularly on the domestic side. We saw last season, like you kind of alluded to there, Ed, they just didn't have the quality the likes of maybe Brave, Phoenix, uh, Originals and Invincibles had. I think there was a bit of a gulf there between those teams and some of the others. And Welsh Fry, unfortunately, were at the bottom end of that. Now, will these names necessarily turn around their fortunes entirely and make them competitive with those teams? We'll have to wait and see. I don't know if that's alone. I don't know if that alone is going to make that difference. But they're definitely in a much stronger position now with those names than they were before. That's exciting. Yeah, and the top five looks really interesting for them. You've got Beaumont and Haynes projected to open, Haley Matthews at three, Fran Wilson at four, Annabelle Sutherland at five. And there's not too much depth past that as of yet, but that's a really exciting top five to have. And it gives them something. I mean, Katie George will hopefully be fit to bowl this year, having not been able to bowl last year, which was pretty much disastrous for them to have a franchise player unable to actually perform at the highest level. And I think that is kind of indicative of how bad they were, the fact that they had a bowler who couldn't bowl playing for them in the 11 because they just didn't have the bodies. But Katie George should be fit to bowl this year, which is good. Hartley comes in, good domestic spinner. Um, and then, you know, you've got some other bits and pieces in that bowling attack. Obviously, Matthews can bowl, Sutherland can bowl. You've got Fee Morris, Claire Nicholas. There's, there's options there. I don't think the bowling's going to blow you away in any way. I think they could have a decent bowling attack. I don't think it's a top-tier one, but it's decent. And I think the Welsh Fire look considerably stronger this year. I wonder how much market interference there was with these decisions, because I'm not sure that the other franchises would have been particularly happy to see Fran Wilson, <laughs> um, Alex Hartley and Ty Beaumont leave their respective doors for the Welsh Fire. So I imagine there was a little bit of interference in there, but it means that the Welsh Fire look considerably better. And I think it pro- you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but they're certainly not the clear worst team anymore. I think also in terms of Welsh Fires, we can talk rivals, but one of the most interesting things about this process in terms of the women's side for me is the departures, one of which from the fire, Sophie Love, and one of which from the Northern Superchargers in Lauren Winfield Hill. Two of the original captains for the tournament are already on the move. Sophie Love, captain of the Welsh Fires now at Spirit, and Lauren Winfield Hill, the most northern cricketer of all time, moves from the Northern Superchargers to the Oval Invincibles. I find it really interesting that already two teams are changing captain. It is interesting, isn't it? I don't necessarily think I predicted this myself. I felt like it was more likely that captains would stay put, I think. You know, those are kind of the the tenpole players, if you like, of, of their respective teams. I feel like that's a good marketing poll to have more than anything else. Moving on so soon is definitely a surprise. But, you know, I think it... it I think it could be beneficial to these players. I, I, the Winfield Hill one particularly intrigues me. Like you say, they're a very Northern player. I just think the fit at Northern Superchargers was a very good one. It kind of ticked a lot of boxes there. I don't know if she wanted to leave. I don't know if Oval approached her. I don't know if she was moved, as you say, by the kind of market interference of the ECB. I don't think whether we'll know if we're honest. But 
it, it, I think she's a good signing, definitely, for overall invincibles. I think she's sliding very nicely in the top order there. It's just a case of why. I don't think we'll ever know. Yeah, I think it is interesting. And obviously, we don't know about the market interference side of things. But I think it's a shame Winfield Hills left the superchargers. But for the superchargers, you know, I imagine they're not necessarily devastated by that. Not that the Winfield Hills not a really good player. She is. But because they have one of the most stacked top orders in the tournament, Alyssa Healy comes over to finally play in the tournament this year, which is exciting. The star of last year, Jemima Rodriguez, is going to play, as is Laura Wolvart of South Africa. They're projected to ban the top three. That is a really insane top order. And I think that's what they're kind of getting to build around, really. They have those gun batters at the top. And then uh, the domestic players are going to be the eight below that and fill up the bowling attack. Yeah, it's an interesting approach. I'm looking forward to see it panning out. I think that is an incredibly strong top order. And I feel like, would it be stronger with Winfield Hill? Yes, of course it would. However, it doesn't look weak without her by any means. I feel like it might be a mutually beneficial move. I think it's interesting in terms of how you build a side because really you could have Winfield Hill and not Wolvart and get an overseas bowler. I think that's usually the, the strategy you go down would be diversify your overseas what they've decided to do is just plonk three batters at the top of the order and worry about the domestic stuff beside that. I think they imagine, you know, Winfield Hill's gone. They've just gone and got those top three players. They're all really good, but it does kind of make the bowling attack interesting because none of them bowl really. So you're going to depend on your domestic players. Obviously you've got Katie Levick, who's a really good leggy. Uh, Beth Langston, who is, in my opinion, the Pradeep Sangwan. Uh, of women's cricket in the UK, uh, left arm swing bowler who looks like they should be really, really good at all times, but just seems to go for runs and you can't really explain why. So they've got some good players, Kelly Amore as well, Lindsay Smith. And then what I really love about this team, Charlie, is that they've brought in Jenny Gunn. Obviously, Jenny Gunn, one of the, the best players, you know, that's ever played for England uh, and you know, played across formats for so, so long. She's been brought in to play for the Superchargers. My big point though, Charlie, is that they've already got Alice Davidson-Richards. I think they're exactly the same cricketer. They, okay. they, they do exactly the same thing. They bat down the order, give a bit of a whack, some no-nonsense, good old-fashioned seam bowling, not particularly quick, but... Stump to stump, have some slower balls, combative. It just they're exactly the same kind of cricketer, and now we get to see them bat five and six for the same team, which I think is really funny. Look, yeah, it, it is funny. I do think Jenny Gunn is a very good signing. I think she yeah. is uh, a, a real legend of the game. I think she has achieved so much, taken so many wickets. It it, it is great to see Jenny Gunn in a hundred, undoubtedly. And it, look, it, it's an interesting way to approach your team of kind of doubling down on, on your straps. But I do think there is a place for both of them in this team. However, yes, I can see your point that having two similar players next to each other in your 11, yeah, it, it, it's an odd look, but I think it might be successful for them. I think it will be successful, but I think they're two really good players. And I think you can have two of those players. It's just kind of like the men's trend rocket side entering this draft thinking, hey, Sam Patel's really good last year. You know who we should draft at 125k? Liam Dawson. 
and just going in for exactly the same cricketer, um, which I think is which I think is great. And look, I think there's a place for them both, and I'm interested to see how they go. Look, I think they have bowling depth, which is important. You've got Gunn and Davidson Richards, who are flexible players. Levick, Lindsay Smith, Ben Langston, Callie Moore. There's bowling options there, and when you have that domestic attack, which I think is an I'm going to call it an average domestic attack, pretty solid. I wouldn't say it's the best in the tournament, but they've got some good bowlers there. And you pair it with that really dynamic top order. I think it's a really interesting team building method. So interested to see how they go and uh, really excited to see Alyssa Healy play because given what you see when she plays for Australia, I get the feeling she's going to dominate this tournament. So that should be really, really fun. London Spirit are an interesting side. We talked about them quite a bit when we were kind of putting together the composite 11s that we've done and trying to work out how they balance. They're, they're a really interesting side, I think, because obviously they brought in Sophie Luff and lost Tammy Beaumont. They basically swapped with the fire there. Um, they get Beth Mooney at the top of the order and they kind of check all of the boxes from what you'd want in a franchise side. You have the gun overseas seamer in Megan Shute, the good domestic second seamer in Fred Davies. Um, international standard domestic spinner in Char- Charlie Dean, um, international level leg spinner and batter in Amelia Kerr. So you've got the bowling side sorted. And then you have Beth Mooney just scores runs. Naomi Datani looks like a really good player, have a night England captain. There's not too much batting depth really with a middle order of Luff, Gibson, Kerr, Scrivens and Kai. It's not... There's not too much talent in the middle order, but they check a lot of the boxes in what you want from a franchise T20 side. Yeah, I, I think they are a little bit top-heavy in terms of how they constructed their batting here. However, the top-heavy players they've got are very, very good. When you're looking at the likes of Mooney and Knight up there, you know, it's not necessarily a huge problem top-heavy because they're very, very good players. And when you have the bowling attack they have, which I think is one of the strongest in the competition on paper, very well-rounded, certainly, then it's fine. You know, if you're going to set as a bowling-heavy side, you can do that. I think it's a, a, a deliberate approach, certainly. How it compares to their approach last year under Trevor Griffin, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know how it's going to work, but on paper, that would appear to be how they're going to set up, and it's intriguing. I think it's interesting because you have three really gun bowlers in Dean, Shoot, and Davis. And then you've got Amelia Coe as an all-rounder. Then you can get overs after Tani and Knight to both bat in the top three. I think they're not going to have a strong middle order, but what they can do is just bat down to eight and not have to worry about the bowling options, really, because you already have Kerr in the top eight and you already have Knight and Tatani there. So you, you might not bat excellently down to eight, but you will de- bat down to eight. And I think that gives you an advantage. So I'm interested to see how they go. I decided to see Sophie Luff in a slightly different situation. I think the Welsh Fire issue last year was a struggle and she was kind of put you know captain basically sinking with the ship really so i'm excited to see how she goes in this spirit side the manchester originals deandra dotin and andre russell at the same franchise really is box office obviously they're taking deandra dotin from the london spirit i wonder if that's some more market interference i i don't know but it does give the manchester originals that really big overseas star to go with Lizelle Lee and Amy Satterthwaite. It gives them a hard-hitting middle-order option. I think that's really exciting. Obviously, they lost Alex Hartley, so that weakens the bowling a bit, but you've still got Sophie Eccleston, Kate Cross, Phoebe Graham, Laura Jackson. 
it, it just seems to me that they're less of a bowling side this year. Last year, they really were a bowling side. You had Eccleston, Hartley, Cross. You, you have those gun bowlers. Now they seem to be more of a batting side with Lizelle Lee, Emma Lamb, Emmy Satatwe, DeAndre Dottin, Cordelia Griffith, Sophie Eccleston, Ellie Threckled. They, they seem to be more of a batting side now which isn't the way that the originals have been or that the Lancashire Lightning have been. And that's probably a good thing because as we discussed uh, before this podcast, the Manchester Originals and Lancashire Lightning always look really, really good on paper and they never win a game. So maybe it's a good thing that they've slightly deviated from the model. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like if you were to look at this kind of little composite 11 that we've got here and compare it to maybe what we would have done this time the last year I don't know if, if I would necessarily instantly think that this is a stronger team and yet I feel like it might do better just because I feel like the way they're set up now might benefit them a bit more I, for whatever reason last year <laughs> it didn't quite click it didn't quite come together and I was very heavily in their camp before it started I thought I tipped them to win if I, if I remember correctly I was, I, was, I was quite big on them and it just didn't happen. And now I feel like they've deviated from the approach I like so much. I'm backing, I'm backing them to actually do well. <laughs> I, I just think looking at that lineup, it, it balances out quite nicely. They are definitely a bit more batting heavy now than before. But again, if you have good batters to rely on, that's not necessarily a problem. Especially when you start to like some Eccleston and Cross to bowl. You know, it's it's not necessarily a weakness in that sense. I I do think. Their weakness last year really was not being able to work out who their fifth bowler was and having to kind of bowl a combination of uh, domestic Seymour and Emma Lamb, which didn't really work for them. They lose Hartley. They bring in Satherthwaite, who can bowl for you. So you have Satherthwaite and Dottin, Eccleston and Cross. Those are your four. And I think you diversify your options now, having those two all-rounders in, in the fact that you can take over some Emma Lamb, Laura Jackson maybe, maybe Phoebe Graham. I don't know who they decide to play in that bowling lineup, but you're diversifying the bowling options. You're not getting maybe the four quality and change approach. You're getting the three or four quality and lots of options. You're diversifying the options. I think that's interesting. I think they have a bit more firepower in the middle order as well. So excited for that. Uh, the Oval Invincibles obviously get Lauren Winfield-Hill, um, which is interesting. I think she'll slot in at the top of the order next to Dane Van Niekerk. And then, um, look, they're going to be good there. You've got those two at the top. Alice Capsi at three, Marazan Cap, Grace Gibbs, Maddie Villiers. You've got batting depth there. They, they look like they'll be good again. They look like they'll be good again. Because when you have, a, again, a, a seam attack of Ismail, Farrant and Cap, a leg spinner like Dane Van Niekerk, an off-spinner like Maddie Villiers, and then, you know, Danielle Gregory, Alice Capsey offering the other options. That's just, that it just really is such a good bowling attack. And when you have something like that and you have the batting options they do, it puts you in a great position. And that bowling lineup is why they won the tournament last year. 100%. I feel like, yeah, the bowling definitely stands out there. You know, that was so good. The way they completely blitzed through the Southern Brave in the final, basically inside the power play and won the game. That was such a dominant display. And like you say, that was what basically won the title single-handedly. Coupling that with the batting lineup, you know, opening up Winfield Hill and Van Niekirk, then you get Capsi and Marizan Cap. It's, it's, it's an exciting team. I feel like usually when you look at cricket sides in T20, you can broadly define them as a batting team 
or a bowling team. It's not very often that you can say there's a team that is kind of both. And I feel like the Invincibles could be defined as a team that is both batting and bowling. And that's a really good position to be in. Yeah, it is. And I think that's partly because you have two of the world's best all-rounders and Van Nierkirk and Cap. And if you have probably one of the best T20 bowlers in the world also batting four for you and a good leg spinner opening the batting for you, it opens up so many possibilities and different avenues. And look, I'm interested to see how they use the flexibility they have in having four pretty gun all-rounders in Van Nierkirk, Cap. I'd include Villiers in that and also Alice Cap Bowl. I'm interested to see how they use the flexibility that gives you. Can they avoid being the Rockets where the other domestic players tend to just kind of fill in and bat at eight and nine and not really bowl? Can they maximise those slots and really make it work? Can they add batting depth would be the main thing for them. I'm interested to see how they work with that, but they look strong again. Let's move on to the Trent Rockets, our favourite team. Um, a team last year that, as we've said, was just so top-heavy. You could basically define their entire strategy by three or four players. You had Catherine Brunt, I think it was at four last year, and Nat Siver, Nat Siver is at three. Yeah, Tammy Joe Johnson opening the batting and the bowling. You basically had Sarah Glenn as well, four or five players who did batted in the top five or six and then bowled their allocation. And then you basically had three or four players along for the ride. And it was a very inefficient way of going about things. This year, it's slightly different, but in a sense, not quite that different. They brought in Meg Lanning, obviously really class player. Mignon Dupree as well. Um, So they've got two really gone overseas bats there. So you have a top order of Lanning, Skiver, Dupree, Brunt, Glenn again. I think Bryony Smith probably goes in that top five somewhere. But again, you do kind of have a very top-heavy batting lineup, uh, And obviously with that, you have Brunt and Siver and Glenn bowling allocation as well. So they've just basically made the batting better. They're better, but still top-heavy. And the bowling is, again, kind of centred on Brunt, Siver and Glenn, though they have brought in Alana King, the leg spinner from Australia, played for them in the World Cup, looks really fun. I'm really excited to see Glenn and Alana King bowl in the same attack. They're, they're quite different leg spinners, which I think will be interesting. So they've, they've got King, so two good leg spinners. But again, I wonder how they're going to use, and I've put, them, I've put these players in, I'm not completely sure how they'll end up working out on the side. I think Bryony Smith probably back to the top six. That's fine. But where do you use Catherine Bryce, Abby Freeborn, Marie Kelly, Sophie Monroe, whoever it is? I do feel like they've improved, but they could, again, kind of be a team dominated by their five or six stars and the other players. Yeah, it is possible. I don't think it's a huge problem. Certainly not as big as it was last year. I think the Alana King signing is a very good one. I think bringing another frontline bowler was a good play there just to ease the strain on some of the all-rounders like Siver and Brunt, who, you know, if you're asking in the bat top four, top five, and more than four allocation every single game, it's a lot of pressure on them. Bringing in a frontline bowler is definitely a good move there. Look, it, it might be an issue in terms of, you know, getting the most out of your resources. 
we saw that last year. It didn't really click for them in that sense. It isn't a sustainable way of setting up your team, being that reliant on a handful of players. However, A, they are less reliant on those players now, and B, the players that they are reliant on are seriously good. Yeah. So it's not an awful situation to be in by any means. You know, relying on the likes of Siver, Brunt, Dupreeze, Meg Lanning, Sarah Glenn, that's, you know, I could think of far worse players to rely on than that. So, you know, all things considered, I think they're an improved side going into this tournament. Yeah. And again, it's a really interesting strategy. You have two really class international standard leg spinners, got Catherine Brunt, um, Nat Siver, all of that batting talent. Can they just be six stars and kind of vibe with the other players? We're going to find out. Uh, really interesting. They'll be better than last year, but uh, just a very interesting side yet again. Uh, a side who I think are really fun, actually. Um, I don't know if people are going to peg them in the favourites list, is the Birmingham Phoenix. I really like the Phoenix this year. Um, they've made a couple of changes. They brought in uh, Elise Perry, uh, obviously the Australian superstar. Sophie Devine's playing for them this year, which is really fun. Um, Sophie Molyneux coming in as an overseas player. Uh, Gwen Davies is going to slot into the middle order. They've they've made some really nice additions on the overseas side. Not too many big changes on the domestic side, but when you have Devine and Perry and Molyneux, it just makes them look like, again, a considerably better side. I see them opening up with Devine and Jones, you have Perry at three, Amy Jones at four, George Elwes at five, Davies, Molyneux, Wong. They bat deep. And then again, Devine and Perry can be part of your bowling attack. Devine's a really good bowler. Uh, and then you've got, again, Molyneux, Wong, Arlet, Gordon, Mahmood. They have batting depth and bowling depth, lots of different options. They can be explosive. They, they, divert, they can be diverse and a, as a bowling side. I really like what they can be this year. Yeah, me too. I think they could be dark horses. I really do. I think they have a lot of flexibility. I think they can set up this team in quite a lot of different ways to play a situation because they've got a lot of really talented all-round cricketers here. They can bat deep, as you say. I think that is a real uh, a real selling point for them, actually. The depth of their batting. When you have something like Izzy Wong coming in, potentially at number eight, you're really in business there. It gives you a license to go hard, play even 10 at the top, knowing that you have batters to car lower down. It's a nice way of setting up your team. If they want to play that brand of cricket, they know they can do that. That, to me, is exciting. They don't have to, though, and that's what makes it even better. They can set up in different ways. You've got someone like Eve Jones, for example, who isn't necessarily the most rapid scorer, but is very solid. So you can rely on her. You, know, you, you can set up your team in different ways, and that is not necessarily a luxury that other teams have. So I'm backing them as dark horses here. I think they can do very well. If you want another niche IPL reference, Eve Jones for me is uh, Abhinav Mukund when he played IPL uh, in the fact that he would bat at the top of the order. If you don't remember, I, I realise I should probably explain when I bring out my niche IPL players. Abhinav Mukund played four tests, I believe. He played a couple over here, I think in 2011. Um, but when he played IPL, he just didn't score very quickly and he finished his innings at like 22 off 21 at the end of the power play, having killed all of the momentum and was basically kind of a respect pick. And look, let's be very clear. Eve Jones is better than that, considerably better than what Abhinav McCund was, but kind of a 
slower scorer for them at the top of the order to kind of go alongside the dynamic players like Divine and Perry and Jones. And Amy Jones played really aggressively last year, but it's kind of a, a nice balancing act for that to make sure they don't lose too many wickets early and they can still rotate the strike and score runs. I think they're a really interesting side. I, I tell you what I think is the big difference between women's cricket and men's cricket at the moment in terms of T20 stuff is you don't get many true all-rounders in men's cricket anymore. Women's cricket, you get a lot of them, uh, and they have two in Perry and Divine, obviously depending on Perry's injury status, but that flexibility really gives them something. So I really like the Phoenix this year. Finally, this might surprise you, Charlie, the Southern Brave are still exactly the same as they were last year. Um, they've got Smriti Mandana and Danny White at the top. Dunkley, Boucher still there in middle order. They bring in Georgia Adams from the Oval Invincibles, who I've kind of carded around three or four. Talia McGrath comes in as an overseas player in the middle order and, and as a bowling option. That's really exciting. You've still got Amanda Jade Wellington and your Shrub Soul is obviously now retired from international cricket. Lauren Bell, podcast favourite. Really, really good bowler. I still think, even though they lost the final last year, they go into this as favourites. No, I completely agree. I feel like that squad they had last year was so good. They were the standout team across the competition. I know the Invincibles were you know, fair and square winners on the day in the final. They blew past them. But on the whole, Southern Bray were probably the strongest team. And it is incredible to me that they've managed to keep pretty much all that squad and get a little bit better, I think, as well. They've really done what they're, they're, the men's counterparts at Southern Brave have been able to do in the draft, which is recruit really well in the first place and then not really have to worry about what you do beyond that because you just lock in that same team again and it's going to do just as well, probably. So if you can do that, then why wouldn't you do that? You know, it's testament to their original recruitment that they've been able to keep the core of last year's really strong team, make some very true additions. I think George Adams did a very good signing for them. Talia McGrath, definitely strengthened the side, very strong overseas player. Beyond that, basically the same team again. Nothing wrong with it. It's going to go again and do very well. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. I'll tell you what really interests me about the Women's 100 this year is when you look at the squads, I think there are some clearly stronger and probably clearly weaker ones, but they're, they're really balanced. I think it should be really competitive this year. And after some of the games last year, mainly involving the Welsh Fire, I think that's really exciting. I think the Fire look good this year. I think they'll be fun. I think each side has a unique selling point. I think the fact that you're getting Alyssa Healy, Beth Mooney, uh, Sophie Devine coming to this tournament is really, really fun. I think that's going to be great. A bit of a shame that Shafali Verma's not coming back, I think, but that's, you know, that, that's just one player. So really, really excited to, uh, to see how this all plays out. And uh, we won't go into our favourites yet, because there's still players to bring in. I think each team has two or three players they can still bring in. But I think this is going to be a fun tournament to look forward to. Before we get out of here, Charlie, let's run through the mailbag, shall we? We have a few questions to go through. And thank you again for sending them in if you want to drop them our way. It's at Podcast 100 on Twitter. Let's start with Harrison, shall we, on Twitter. Uh, he says, after the success of the double headers last season, would you like to see the organisers have some days with the women's game second in the primetime evening slot? Now, I think, Charlie, this might already be in the works. Yeah, it is. So this year, because the Commonwealth Games overlaps slightly with the 100, the women's 100 starts slightly later than the men's 100 tournament. However, what this does mean is that the first women's game of the competition, which will be a double header, um, they have swapped around 
the running order. So the, the men are on first at three o'clock and then the women's have the prime time slot in the evening. I believe that's the only fixture where that is the case. Personally, I would like to see them try it more. I think it would be a, a format that just makes sense. I think it'd be good to see the women's game get that primetime attention. It deserves it. But it is a start that they're doing that for the first women's game of the competition. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I hope it goes well. I'm sure it will. James, also on Twitter, says, how many games will Joss Butler play for the Manchester Originals this year? The Joss Butler is in scintillating form in the IPR. I think it's, how many is it? 400 in the last nine T20 knocks he's played. He is on an absolute roll. And presuming that he's not going to be playing for the England Test side this summer, he's going to be playing every game for the Manchester Originals. I don't see him playing tests, to be honest. I want to see him playing in 100 every single game. And I think he will. I think he's going to captain Manchester for every single game. He's going to open up with full salt and it's going to be really, really fun. Do you want to guess? So seven innings for Joss Butler, 491 runs, three hundreds, averaging 80, striker of 161. He's played seven games. Try and give me a ballpark figure of how many boundaries he's hit. Oh. 35 combined for fours and sixes combined i don't know that's a tough question to throw on me just give it away what is it how many are we talking 73 73 41 fours 32 sixes in seven games that's insane to he's 230 runs ahead of kale rahul who's second it's remarkable i don't think there's another cricketer in the competition who has more than 20 sixes and he has 32 that's crazy. What a player. Yeah, he has 15 more sixes than anyone else in the tournament. Basically double <laughs> the next best player. It's ridiculous. So yeah, he's going to play 12 games next year, which I think is fun. Um, yeah, I'm just so excited to see him play for the originals. I think he could dominate this tournament. Uh, and I think that's what you want in the 100. I think that's kind of the critique that a lot of people had last year is that you didn't always get the gun players playing all the time and you didn't get the gun overseas players. And I think the fact that Joss Butler probably won't be in the test side um, is really fun. And, you know, similarly, I, I, I really want Johnny Bairstow to play test cricket because he really wants to, but there's a chance he's not in the test side either. He plays for the Welsh Fire. That makes the tournament better. So interesting to see, but I do think Joss Butler is probably going to play every game. Uh, Tom Reynolds, also on Twitter. Thank you very much, Tom. He asks us, what do you make of the Invincibles men's pace bowling attack? Lots of big names and decent on paper, but what do you think they'll do at the death? Both Currens, Topley and Sakib all do it. Sam Curran and Topley probably have the best records, but you'd assume TC will be given at least 10 of the last 25. I've not gone into the deep stats of this. I do not think Sam Curran has the best record of the four. Um, I would imagine... Topley has a better record than people think at the death. I think he's developed into actually quite a nice death bowler. I think Sakib is a bit of a Yorker merchant. He's good to sit when he comes off, but he can at times be got away. I think that's the thing is they do have this really great domestic attack, but they don't really have a gun death bowler in a in the way the Brave have too in Mills and, and Archer. And you could probably include Chris Jordan at a domestic level, even though he's not in the franchise circuit, an international level. I, I, I imagine they'll get Topley, Tom Curran, and Saki Mahmood 
to do it. I imagine they'll probably get 10, 10, and 5 in the last 25. That's how I'd see it. I do not really see them planning on using Sam Curran too much of the back end, back end unless they have some sort of disaster. No, I see Sam Curran operating more in the power play with the new ball. I think that's his strength. He's very good there. That's And during the middle overs as well, I think I can see him bowling there. I don't necessarily see him as their go-to deaf guy. I think Topley is my preference as a deaf bowler of the guys they have. I've always liked what he offers at the deaf. Tom Curran is what he is. I know he gets a bad reputation. I know his figures in recent years haven't been particularly strong, but I will say that he had a very strong competition last year at yeah. 100. He was very good. And I think they're back into it again. So I'm assuming that Topley and Tom Curran will do the bulk of their bowling at the deaf. I would imagine that Saqib will probably operate more in the power play. I think that's his strength. I'm not a huge fan of his death bowling, but I'm a much bigger fan of his power play bowling. So that would be my play. I feel like I'm happy to give Saqib five yeah. at the end. I don't think he is necessarily bowling my my last two sets of five, though. I think that's going to be Tom Curran and Reese Topley. I think Saqib and Sam Curran will be bowling more in the earlier sets for me. I think that's what's fun about this lineup is the fact they have three really good power play bowlers in Topley, Sam Curran and Sakib. And that means they can have, you know, 15 deliveries, three really good sets of power play bowling up top with a new ball without having to worry about maybe doubling up. They don't have a guy that's just the power play bowler. They have three guys who can all cause problems Maybe Sakib as a death bowler is interesting. I, I, I'm interested to see him develop as it. But I, I personally prefer um, Topley and Tom Curran. But I think Tom Curran gets a bad rep because he hasn't quite worked to the international stage. And that's kind of okay. Like, not every player is destined to be an IPL superstar. He had a good tournament last year. He's a good domestic death bowler. It's perfectly fine. I think the big concern for them is if Sakib Mood starts playing test cricket this summer, as he should and Sam Curran maybe gets called up as well, and suddenly your seam bowling attack is going to have to be reinvented. Well, in that scenario, you're looking at Matt Milnes. Um, and Which is a good backup. It is a good backup signing, but he is the only other seam they have off the top of my head, um, yeah, which means yeah. that you're probably relying on a Gus wild Atkinson. Gus Atkinson, here we go. Gus Atkinson would, would be a very nice signing for them, makes I think. Sense. Obviously, there's a story connection. It makes sense. He would come in nicely if he, if he didn't need to cover for Saki or Sam Curran. He's not obviously a Sam Curran. He's, he's not you know, going to bat in the same way as Sam Curran is. But he, you know, they've got enough. They've got batting there. They can probably rejig it and make it work. Otherwise, you're looking at, you know, you want to slightly rebalance the team. Someone like Jack Leaning and he... Um, oh. I think he's many things, but a, a death bowler he is not. No. The only other option I would like to throw into the mix here is still on the right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think you forget, and that's what I do think people forget how good Solon is at the death. I think because we've all become so accustomed to him being generally brilliant, I just kind of assumed that they use him through the middle overs and bank on the seamers. But you make a really good point. Arguably, he is their death bowler. I think, yeah, like I he think probably is best. their best death ball. It's best. just, I, I think it's just I forget about how good Solomon Ryan is all the time because he just casually does it. I think that's what maybe weirds me out a bit in Ryan that sometimes because when Rashid Khan is like unbelievably good, there's no ignoring him. I think it's been like so ingrained in us that everyone blocks him out because they've been doing it for years and years and years. I remember 
And here comes a Pune Warriors India reference. Sorry about this. Old school IPL. We've already done Pradeep Sangwan, uh, Abhinav Mukund. And my, my quota isn't done yet. I remember watching Pune Warriors India versus Kolkata Knight Riders with my dad. And Yuvraj Singh, one of the great Indian players, just plodded forward his front foot and blocked Southern Rhine like for six straight deliveries, basically. He needed like 40 or four overs still. And he just plonked the front foot forward. I was like, I'm not dealing with this. I know it's not going to work. But yeah, you know, I, I, that's how good he is. And I think everyone's just so used to it. And the fact that he's come back after such a great action change is wonderful. And I think that's what I like about the Oval Invincibles borrowing attack as well, is that we talk about the seam attack so much and how much we love it. Uh, oh, by the way, also Sun on the Rhine's there. So that's what interests me. And I think that, that, that that's kind of fun is that they can kind of play with it. I think Tom Curran probably still bowls 10. I think they'll probably want to use Narayan for five. I think because they'd love to use him in the middle overs against, you know, players getting in still. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, they just have so much diversity as a bowling attack, which I think is fun. Uh, final question uh, from Chris. How would you like to see the 100 evolve, he asks, i.e. in terms of more teams, more overseas, more games, or possibly some different rules, for example. Before we get into this, Charlie, would you like me to quickly run through my answers? I imagine they'll be quite predictable. More teams? No. More overseas? No. More games? No. Possibly some different rules? No. Floor's yours. I think I'm predictable enough. <laughs> yeah, I... I'm saying no for all of those things as well. Um, I don't think we need more teams. I think expanding at this point kind of defeats the purpose of 100 in the first place, really. I think the whole point is to concentrate your talent. The second you start expanding it, you're not really achieving that. You've got 18 counties. They're brilliant for your outreach. Use them as well. This doesn't need to be expanded, personally. More overseas, equally no, because we are blessed in this country with a really deep pool of wonderful domestic talent in the white ball game. Those guys need to be playing. They deserve to be playing and getting a chance here. When you look at last season, guys like Will Smead, Chris Benjamin coming through out of basically nowhere and taking the big stage by storm. When you get more overseas players coming in, that doesn't happen so easily. Those slots get taken off and those players don't get the chance. So, no. I would hate to see, no disrespect to him, I would hate to see the next Will Smead development blocked by a guy like Ben Dunk. You know, that, that, I don't want that situation to start happening. More games? No, I don't want a tournament that's too long. You look at the Big Bash, it expanded way too far and way too much, and it's just boring now. It really ruined what was a wonderful tournament. So I think the fact that 100 is consumed in the space of a month is perfect. It's ideal. You get enough time to have a nice little ebb and flow, and you get a narrative to build, but it's not too long that you lose interest halfway through. So different and different rules, I mean... I think it's done enough rule changing for now. I feel like the hundreds established its its unique rules away from other forms of cricket. I think now is time to consolidate the rules that it established last year and not start fighting around with gimmicky stuff just because you can. Yeah, I think the thing about the hundred right is everyone says, "Oh, the hundred rules are a gimmick." They're not supposed to be. They're they're kind of gimmicky for for old fans, but for new fans. It's supposed to be a simplified version of things. And I don't think it's always been made simple enough, but people are going to start learning the rules. They're going to start learning the basics. The last thing you want to do is make it complicated again. That's the exact thing this tournament is trying to avoid. And the Big Bash rules are really stupid. 
but they're really stupid. The big bash in itself has shot itself so hard in the foot over the last few years. I don't think we need new rules. And I think that would be a problem. I think, again, we don't want to see too many teams. I think it defeats the point and it would, you know, it would, it would dilute the amount of players. However, I would like to point out if that someone is launching a new hundred team and would like an analyst to take over me and Charlie are available. But, but my point is, I think, it's kind of okay for now. Let's leave it for two or three years and see where we are. Um, as I think, look, I love the 100. I think it's great. But you can't expand it too much more than it already is because county cricket still got to evolve around it. You still got to have that player pathway. You still need to play counter championship. You still need to play the blast. So I think evolving would and expanding would be wrong. I don't think the 100 can dominate the summer in the way that the Big Bash does. I think it needs to be short and sweet and fun and brilliant. And that's what it needs to be. So there we are. We are Luddites. Luddites, of course, for about a tournament that's only been around a year and we've been doing a podcast on for a year. So uh, very on brand for us. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the 100 podcast. Check us out on Twitter at Podcast 100. Got some exciting stuff coming up, some player interviews. Hope to chat some analysts from the tournament. Should all be good fun stuff. So as I said, follow us on Twitter at Podcast 100 and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.